We give you thanks, God, that you are a God of the whisper. And you give us opportunities and invite us into times of silence, reflection, places where we can reset and be recharged. We trust that your spirit is with us and that regardless of what I say, that you'll be able to meet us in this time. So Lord, protect us and shape us. In your name, amen. Humans uh, over the years have really made some beautiful things. I mean, we're, we're, we're actually, humans are pretty impressive, if you ask me. And uh, are, are you all familiar with the seven wonders of the world? Yeah. Um, he, here's the seven modern wonders. There used to be seven ancient wonders, I learned in my research. But have, have, have anyone actually visited these? these? Anyone visited a few of these? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've not made it to any of them, um, but there, there, quite a few are on my, um, on my, on my wish list. What, what I was curious about this, as I was thinking about the seven wonders of the world, all kind of beautiful things that humans have made, is uh, I was wondering how many of these were built for religious purposes? How many were built for religious purposes? I don't know if you've thought about that, but the answer is actually uh, um, more than half. More than half were built for religious purposes. The Mayan pyramid was used for religious rituals. The Christ, the Redeemer in Rio, de, you know, that, that's pretty obvious. Um, we happen to be familiar with that one, uh, Christ the Redeemer. The Taj Mahal, I didn't know this, but it was built as a memorial for an emperor's wife um, by, uh, who was Muslim, um, which wouldn't have been my guess, and includes various Islamic promises of the afterlife carved into the model as, as meant to be like a gateway to heaven, you know? And this the emperor's wife had passed away, and this was a memorial kind of helping celebrate what it meant to move on to the next life. The, the original purpose of Machu Picchu is uh, there's a lot of theories, and, 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 and we're not sure what it is, but it, all, many of them were rooted in religious practice. And if you dig even deeper... The only modern seven wonder of the world that wasn't at some point used for the uh, um, religious purposes was, was the Great Wall of China. The Roman Colosseum, for example, I didn't know this, was used for Christians as a church at one point when Christianity was very popular in Rome and they needed, it's kind of like probably the original megachurch, I imagine. Um, and it was very popular, and they used it for worship services and for gathering. And Petra's, um, which is that, that temple carved into rock, it was a major trading port, but it became a major trading port because it its claim to fame was this was the traditional site where Moses made water come out of rock, right? So it has like these sort of, you know, this religious undertone as well. So six out of the seven modern, the only one is the, the Great Wall of China, which was claimed to be for defense, but... Um, the little research I did on the Google, um, that most would say that it was just propaganda. It didn't really help provide defense, but it was like a nice statement piece. Um, something about building walls, you know, or propaganda. I don't know. I'll let you, I'll let you draw those guys. That's not even in my notes. I'm just saying, like, I'm just, that's what it was with the Great Wall of China. Do what you want with that. Um, so something about us as humans, you know, when we believe in God and we want to honor God or the divine, whatever the religion, we build something, you know, something beautiful. And, and we've made some beautiful spaces. You can Google beautiful churches and find one in every part of the world. Um, I found a few, and I want to share them with you. Check this out. Columbia. Look at that. It's great, right? Here's an interesting one in France. 
Yeah, I know. Some of you are like, man, it's hard to get to church on Sundays. No, it isn't. We don't have that many steps. Yeah. Imagine waking your kids up for that one. Here's one in Norway. Beautiful. This is uh, called a, a stave uh, type of church. That's the, that's the style of being built in wood. This is in Norway. It's epic, and it's dark and mysterious. You can kind of like, like uh, there, there should be like a BuzzFeed where it's like, what church are you, you know? And some of you are like, that's me, you know? And others are like completely unreachable. Um, and I get it. Here's one in Ethiopia. And I was like, what is, why does it look like this? Well, it looks like that, like there's walls all the way around it because it was actually carved entirely out of that cliff. And so this is carved in, in Ethiopia. Um, and it, basically like similar to like a quarry type of thing. It's beautiful, but it's hard, and, but there's a beauty to it. And, and then one more very popular, this one gets a whole town and, an, and even sometimes an island when the tide is in. And it's epic, and it's beautiful. You can find, you know, just as beautiful places of worship in other religions. I had a chance to uh, go to Thailand uh, quite a few years ago, and we visited a lot of temples. Here was, here was a set of temples that we were able to visit, gold-plated, absolutely gorgeous, giant statues of uh, Buddha, reclining Buddha, etc. Um, if you tried to count all the religious buildings in the world... I mean, it would be hard. I tried to look up a number, like how many religious buildings are in the world, and there's not a number out there um, because it's a lot. And here's my point. When, when humans believe in a higher power, as our friends at AA would say, or, or, or some kind of deity, we want to build something for them, for, for them that helps us connect with them, and, and they're usually some of the most beautiful things humans have built in history. The divine inspires us to create this beautiful thing. But here's the problem. According to our faith, as people who are followers of Jesus, and, and specifically the teachings of Jesus in the early church, the, the, the crazy part about this is that we believe that God doesn't dwell in temples. And, and this even goes back before the time of Jesus. You, you can go back to the building of Israel's temple itself, which was a, which was a building meant to harness the presence of God. And even there, David wanted to build this temple, and God said, no, you've done way many, too many, you've got issues you need to work on. And so then it ended up being his son Solomon who built the temple. And after building it, Solomon has this revelation, and he says in 1 Kings 8, through uh, chapter 8, verse 27, he says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much this temple I have built. God can't be limited to a building. Of course God can but then later in the New Testament, after God came at the time of Pentecost and dwelt amongst us in the person of Jesus, that the people of Jesus realized something, and Paul declares it. And yes, Ariel, midweek does help for my sermons quite a bit because we talked about this, didn't we? <laughs> your comment for this. Anyways, Paul declares this. Do you know, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Think about this for a second. God had the choice to dwell in some pretty great buildings. Buildings that you guys were like, ooh, ah. A lot of great choices. God could have chosen any number of beautiful places to hang out, you know, to show up in, to share the holiness of God's presence with. 
But given all the wonderful choices that God had to show up and take up residence in, God chose you. That's what we believe. That's the power of the gospel. God chose us. Not this building, although it has its own charm and beauty, doesn't it? God chose to spend time with us, with all the diversity in our bodies, with all the diversity of our shapes and sizes and skin tones and abilities, disabled and differently disabled, black and white, tall and short, thin and round, trans, non-binary, bald even, and those with hair. God chose the human body to be the resting place, the dwelling place of the divine. Oh, if we could only begin to understand that. You know, I know that our culture has a war against our bodies. I'm going to get into some hard stuff here. So just stay with me. But our culture has a war against our bodies. We, we shame people because they don't fit impossible standards, which are, by the way, entirely cultural and arbitrary. Racism was rooted in how we view other people's bodies. We hated people because of the color of their skin. We hate people, we hate sometimes being in photos because we don't like the way we look. We, we struggle with overeating and we struggle with eating disorders and not eating enough. We, we check our weight um, every morning just to check and we're comfortable in our own bodies as if, and here's the thing, if I, I'm not one who like believes in like the, I'm not like super into like, uh, you know, evil spirits and Satan and, you know, like I think evil is much more pervasive than just an individual demon sort of personality. But if I ever believed that there was maybe something that had gone awry, that things were not as they should be, it would be in this, that God had chose to love us and create us in the same way that we view beautiful temples, God views our bodies, and then somehow along the line, so many of us don't like our bodies. Man, something's wrong. It's not how it should be. We're in a series called Keeping the Faith or Keep the Faith. And uh, we're looking at faith practices that can help us grow in our faith. And we're pulling loosely from John's three simple rules. You can wear his rules every day if you go to our website and purchase a shirt. And uh, do no harm, do good. And both of those are some goals I have for today. I hope to do no harm and do some good and pray, pray to God that I do both of those. And then keep the faith, or as he said it, attend upon all the ordinances of God. And by ordinances of God, John Wesley meant this. He said this. The public worship of God, the ministry of the word, either read or expounded, the supper of the Lord, family and private prayer, searching the scriptures, and fasting or abstinence. So last week we talked about scripture, and I shared a way to maybe re-encounter scripture as a spiritual practice. And next week we're going to talk about prayer and share some practices that maybe you aren't familiar with. But today um, I want to explore fasting and abstinence, but in a slightly different way. I want to expand the conversation to consider how faith can be practiced in our bodies, which are gifts from God. How our bodies, or more specifically the relationship to what we put into our bodies, is an important part of our faith practice. There's no doubt that our bodies are a part of our spiritual lives, uh, not just because theologically we believe that God chose to dwell in us, not just because theologically we believe God actually became one of us, but in some practical ways as too, uh, ways as well. Uh, consider prayer, as, as I invite you sometimes, you know, as I did today, to open your hands um, and pray. It puts you in a position to receive and it, I mean, when you, someone taught you how to pray, what did they tell you to do? What, fold your hands and bow your heads, you know? 
There's something about putting ourselves, kneeling. If you've not knelt in worship before, it's a powerful experience. Um, and and, and uh, I want to encourage you, um, but it's more than that. Cons- consider mental health. Uh, most who have struggled with mental health have learned that exercise and being active can help. Working our bodies heals our mind and our spirit. Our body, mind, and spirit, they're all connected. And so there are a lot of practices that we can look at that involve our bodies in its relationship to our faith. Uh, things like exercise. Um, yoga is very meaningful for many Christians. But, t- but today, I want to talk about what we put into our bodies and how we eat and consume and how that impacts our life. And, and I know that this is a sensitive issue, but I, but I think, but I think it, it's, we're going to keep it helpful and, and obviously, talking about what we consume, whether it be food, uh, medication, drugs, legal or illegal, you know, all of that can be very sensitive. So that's why I wanted to start the way I did. I know, I know some people will say that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and they say it in such a way that makes you feel horrible about yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? I think, you've got to flip that around. That doesn't represent the witness of scripture. God, knowing full well who you are and what you struggle with and what you're experiencing, God knowing you and knowing the humans and and all of your weaknesses still looks at us probably the way that we look at these temples. And God looks at at the temple that God built, which is you, and says, wow, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. I just, can I, can we be roomies? We can't start this conversation from a place of shame. So we got to start from a place of belonging and love. So God loves you. God isn't mad at you. God loves you, and God is not mad at you. I promise you. And anyone would tell you otherwise, you cut that voice out of your life, whether it be your own or somebody else's, because God is not mad at you. So let's talk about a couple of ways that we can relate to the things that we put into our bodies and more specifically, change what we consume. There's three principles I want to look at, and I've never, if you would have told me I would preach on all three of these in one sermon, I would have laughed at you, but um, the first one is, is fasting, the second one is moderation, and the third is sobriety. And I actually think something really interesting happens when you compare these to each other. So fasting is when we give something up that is generally considered okay to have, but you give it up for a short period of time to force yourself to open up to, you know, your awareness to either God or to other people. So it's giving up something good for a short period of time to increase awareness. That's fasting. Moderation is when you give up something that's indulgent, usually, um, on a regular basis, so you develop a rhythm around it so that you can actually enjoy it in a healthy and more reasonable way. And then sobriety, as I'm defining it, these are my definitions, and I am neither a doctor nor a health professional. This is from the perspective of theology and spiritual practices, so I'm gonna just, that's my disclaimer. Oh, and also, I just want to name something. The fact that Thanksgiving is this week is just a funny coincidence. Like, that is not, it is not, it is not related I realized that this morning, okay? <laughs> to be fair, I plan on eating and maybe drinking more than I should, okay? So this is all held in tension. Sobriety is giving up something that's unhealthy. You give it up indefinitely so that it doesn't control you. So this is, I'm offering theological pre- definitions based on spiritual practices. So I want to start with fasting. 
And I got to be honest about fasting. Has anyone considered practiced fasting on a regular basis? Found it meaningful? Okay, I, I have not. Uh, I haven't fasted much. I haven't found fasting to be especially meaningful. I have fasted. Um, um, I'm just stating that. Uh, I'm starting there so that you just know where I'm coming from. So I've never really understood it. It's never connected with me. And so I've kind of wrestled with it as I'm talking about it. And maybe there's some others in the room who've felt that way. I'm, I'm a person of routine. <laughs> and, and eating, when I eat, and what I eat is part of my autistic routine, and which is pretty common for people who are neurodiverse. And so I've wondered if maybe that's impacted, you know, the, the harsh change of fasting could be very disorienting to me. But, but as I started to think about this lesson, and I, I think I, I want to give it another try, because when I compare it to other things, there's some things that point out that I find interesting. Um, I think I would define fasting in these two ways. And this is my definition. First, you give up something that is generally viewed as good for you. It, you're, you're only doing it for a short period of time, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, that's all. Fasting, to me, doesn't make sense when you're giving up something that you know you shouldn't be engaging in. Anyways, like, like people are like, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent because I eat too much chocolate. I'm like, I think there's some practical benefits of that. Like, it's a form of self-discipline. But fasting, I think, is theologically, anyways, is something different. There are physical benefits to fasting and that's a conversation you could have with a health professional. But theologically, fasting is when you give up something that's good for a short period of time for a particular reason. For example, Jesus fasted. There's a story of him giving up food for a ridiculous amount of time, 40 days. Now, Jesus didn't have any problem with food. We have no evidence to think that he gave up food for 40 days because he had to work on his eating habits. Um, in fact, one of the, probably the main foods he ate was bread. Um, and that was the food he was tempted with when he was fasting. It was bread. They just like, you know, turn this rock into bread. And, and not, only, uh, what, not only does Jesus use bread as a metaphor for himself, um, but so he uses the bread of life, but he actually tells us we should eat bread. You know, like once a month we take communion and, and it's a symbol of Christ's body. So obviously Jesus had no problems with bread as something to eat. Um, he just gave it up for a few weeks. He gave up something good for a short season. And why do that? I, I, there are probably a lot of reasons, but here are the two that most resonated with me. And I think both are especially helpful for those, um, for those of us who have pretty good lives, people who might be defined as privileged to have what they need. Um, these reasons for fasting might be especially for meaningful to people who are well off, so if, the, if you identify as that. The first reason is to remind you of what it feels like to be hungry. Do you remember the last time you were hungry? When we go through life getting what we need, and we forget the pain of hunger. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. He means that there are some things in our spiritual life that we might not get without wanting them, without having a hunger for them. It, it, we have to remind ourselves what it feels like to want something, to need something. Oh, I need this. We, we, make, we might take that feeling, um, that desire, like, oh, I'm so hungry, and take it. We can redirect it to our spiritual life and kind of develop a hunger for God. This is one of the purposes of fasting from a theological perspective. In other words, a physical hunger, hunger might help us stir in us a spiritual hunger. You know, just like placing your hands up and as if you're receiving something for God can help center you, 
um, going without food for a short period of time opens us up to being hungry for God. And, and I kind of resonate with that. Here's the second reason that resonated with me as I did some research on fasting. It's a, it's a great way to have solidarity with the poor or those who are experiencing poverty. Just like feeling hungry can raise your awareness to your need for God, uh, spiritual hunger, um, remembering what it feels like to be hungry helps us have empathy and understanding for the millions of people who go to sleep every day on an empty stomach. It promotes solidarity. The last church I served in Athens, um, a few of, few of my friends from Athens are here, you know, who found their way back to Columbus. But uh, we used to do a week of solidarity. Um, and we invited the congregation to live on less than a dollar a day, which at the time represented the majority of the world lived on less than a dollar a day. So every, for a week, you lived on less than a dollar a day in solidarity with the millions of people who do that already. And which is $1 a day, you're not eating much, you're, you're using $7 for the week to buy some rice and simple bread and maybe vegetables, that sort of thing. And you lived on it for a day. And, and, and it's something, I don't know, that you were able to experience and develop a greater sense of awareness of what other people are experiencing. Maybe it's something that we could do next year. I don't know. But so that's fasting, giving something up that we know is good for us, but only giving it up for a short season so that we can be reminded of what it feels to need something. Not only so we can direct that feeling towards God, but so that we might have a greater empathy for those who go without daily needs every day. That's, that's fasting. That's my take on fasting for today. There's more thoughts I probably have, but that's it. The second one I want to look at is moderation. There are, uh, there are many things in life that I absolutely love that I also know aren't great for me in large quantities. Most of those things involve sugar and uh, ice cream and candy and cake and cookies, and I'm just getting hungry thinking about it. There, there are other things I enjoy as well that, that I have to consume in moderation, like alcohol. There, there are things that for me, and, and your list might be different, aren't great for me, but they don't necessarily have control over me. I don't have a necessarily unhealthy relationship with them, although the case could be made for sugar. Very addictive. And caffeine. Um, but they can be enjoyed in moderation. Paul says it like this. 1 Corinthians six twelve says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He, he argues... As a person of faith, as a follower of Jesus, there are specific, there are no specific restrictions on what you should eat or engage in, um, like there was in the Old Testament. But, but wisdom will say that one, not everything is helpful or healthy, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And some things might even try to control you. He says, but I will not be dominated by anything. So you have to kind of separate them into two categories. If, if it doesn't control you, then you can engage in it in moderation. If it, has, if it begins to dominate your life, that's where we're going to talk about sobriety. So for those who are not healthy, uh, for those things that are not necessarily healthy but enjoyable, you can enjoy in moderation. And the list for me is going to be different from someone else. Which is, which is why you can't just make a list of things that you're not allowed to consume as a Christian. And Christians love to do this. Like, here's all the things you're not allowed to, to partake in. No, your experience and your body and your needs and your, your relationship to whatever is going to be different than my relationship. And I have to know myself. So if you have something that you enjoy and it doesn't have control over you, which means you can do without it if needed, you don't have to feel bad about enjoying it. 
there should be no shame in consuming good things. Have a glass of wine, if that isn't something you struggle with. Have a piece of cake. Enjoy it. Feel free. And I will add this. Eat healthy. Exercise, of course. Have fun with that. But if your healthy living goes too far, it could become unhealthy. And that needs to be done in moderation as well. So the, the goal here is to find balance in health. Too much of a good thing is sometimes a bad thing. In fact, I would say too much of a good thing is almost always becomes bad. So the best experiences in life are in moderation. So have you, uh, have you ever eaten cake every day for a week? You don't have to raise your hands. I have. <laughs> and I am here to tell you, it is the classic example of what business people call diminishing return. For so many reasons. First off, it loses quality over time, right? But second, you just don't enjoy it. The more, that's what I'm saying. That's the beauty of moderation. You give it up for a while so that, it, that it'll keep being wonderful. God gave us good things to enjoy. Um, and our response to that should be gratitude and thanksgiving. There's, I tied it in. You're welcome, thanksgiving people. So that's fasting. That's moderation. Fasting is you give up something good. For a short period of time, moderation is you adjust your relationship to something that isn't necessarily horrible for you, but you, you need to just have balance. The last one is sobriety. Sobriety is when you give up something because it has a tendency to take control of your life. Similar to fasting, I kind of uh, wading into uncharted waters. I've, I've been friends with people in recovery. I've pastored people in recovery. I've walked through the 12 steps once, our, our church in Athens actually did a series, 12 weeks in the 12 steps, and um, it's very, very powerful. If you've never done the 12 steps, whether you're a recovering uh, alcoholic or addict of any kind, I highly recommend the 12 steps. It is a beautiful process for discipleship, very, very, very intense process of, of self-awareness. Um, my wife right now is, is deeply engaged in recovery ministry. Um, she attends a recovery service on Wednesday nights. Um, and she absolutely loves it. This is addicts who are coming off the street, live on the streets. It happens on, in the hilltop at the Hope Recovery Center, and it's called the Hope Gathering. She preaches there once or twice a month on Wednesday nights. And uh, because of that, she doesn't, and I want to say this because I think people are getting confused on Facebook, she, she was not an alcoholic. Just wanted to just... She wasn't, but she gave up alcohol, and she is now celebrating sobriety. So she went and got one of the pins for three months sober, um, and it's very meaningful, but it's in, in solidarity and as a practice of sobriety for her, her own benefit, um, even though I would say, as her husband, this was not, you know, like it wasn't a major problem, but she just wanted to do that, and I think it's beautiful. So here at City View, our church hosts multiple. We have like three or four AA groups, uh, uh, NA group, which is Narcotics Anonymous, we have now a Drugs Anonymous group. Um, we've had uh, OA, Overeaters Anonymous group. Um, so this means a lot to us. And, and so I, I want to just say, because we don't have time to get into everything, I want to say just two things that I think might be helpful as we talk about these topics. The first one is for our church and for people like people in our church. And this might not apply to you, but it applies to me, and I know it applies to some of us. Many in our church drank alcohol. Um, I enjoy beer and some wine. Um, 
we've had alcohol at church events. Yeah. Not in the church building, but in other places. A lot of fun. Um, Charlie had wine at our fundraising, and she was definitely very encouraging people to drink it, to encourage them to give. Doesn't work that that, but it was very funny. And she's around here somewhere. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I, I'll have a, a pint at, at, a, at a bar and offer people a beer when I have guests over, if that makes sense. I don't usually drink at home, but I, I will drink occasionally. And, and so I've noticed something for people who've, who were raised to see alcohol as evil and then discovered that maybe it isn't evil. Um, this includes me. And that maybe it's fine for some people to drink in, in moderation, of course. Um, this particular group of people can kind of get a little giddy about it. You know, I, me. I'm talking about me. And we kind of overcompensate for the ways that people told us how to think about alcohol by talking about how great alcohol is. And I've done this. And I just want to say, and it's something I've been recently processing, and I've, uh, I've shared with a few of you my thoughts as I've come to realize this, mostly because of Alyssa's journey around working in the recovery ministry. Um, I just want to say that drink alcohol is fine if it's fine for you. But you need to understand it's not fine for everyone. And let's think about how we talk about it. Alcohol and drugs have ruined marriages and lives. Addictions to drugs and alcohol and other similar struggles like eating disorders have, have, have turned people's lives upside down. So, so I guess for those like me who enjoy a beer every once in a while, I think we need to just think about what it means to respect people who maybe that doesn't... We might not find it helpful to have it celebrated so much. I'm not 100% even sure what that means, but I think my main encouragement is for us to have grace and consideration for those who find this a struggle, right? So that's just an invitation to think about. The second thing I want to share about sobriety is from a friend of mine. I have a friend, he's a clergy person, who's currently on leave, which means he's not serving a church and hasn't for a couple of years. He had to step down from pastoring because he's an alcoholic and it had become unmanageable. He's currently, praise God, working the steps and doing better, but he's been in recovery off and on, which is often the case, uh, for years and has attended many different retreat centers and different styles of recovery centers. He's, he's tried a lot, and he's currently doing well. And uh, knowing that I was going to mention sobriety in my message, I asked him uh, on Facebook. I, I had just seen him, so we had chatted, so I messaged him. I wasn't out of the blue. And I said, hey, we're going to talk about sobriety and recovery a little bit. And wh- what do you wish Christians understood about this? That's just one person's perspective. Well, he, he shared his perspective, 1,300 words, which is about how many words I've shared so far. And uh, um, so I can't share everything, but I want to share just a few things before we end. First, he said that addiction impacts every part of a person. You don't, that, I'm not ready for that yet. Addiction impacts every part of a person from the way their brain works to their self-image and, of course, their body. And it works its way in and will destroy everything in that person's life, their body, their relationships, their view of themselves. There can be a lot of shame and guilt and regret connected with addiction. So it kind of impacts the whole person. The second thing he said he really wishes churches understood and just people in general was that addiction is a disease. And by that, he means this is is a generally well-accepted and researched fact amongst medical professionals and people who work in recovery, but it is not well-accepted or practiced in our society. Um, It's not how addicts are treated. The government treat addicts in the criminal justice system. So if you're an addict, that's how you're handled, not by medical professionals, but by judges and court systems. 
And the church usually sees addiction as a moral failure instead of a disease. And by disease, he means this, as he explains, when when someone gets addicted to something, uh, really addicted, and I'm not using it in the haphazard sort of way of like, I'm addicted to caffeine, like seriously addicted. Their brain, once again, not a a medical professional, this is my two cents uh, from what I've understood. Their brain gets rewired to the point that it begins to think they need it, like they need it, need it. And he says that most non-alcoholics don't understand this. They see a beer, they enjoy a beer, they choose to drink a beer, or they choose not to drink a beer, so they assume someone who drinks beer in excess must enjoy it and are choosing to drink it. And this is not the case. Once an addiction has rewired the brain, it no longer feels like a choice. He explained it like this, my, my pastor friend. Though a non-addict cannot understand the internal workings of the disease on an alcoholic's mind, they can accept the fact that one with substance abuse disorder has a brain which equates the drug of choice with food, water, air, and sunlight. The hijacked brain has elevated a substance to a needed element like food and water. This is hands down my experience. So why does someone keep going back to something that is killing them if you've ever wanted? The brain has decided they need it like the air we breathe. Do they need it? No, it's killing them. But their brain is convinced that they will die without it. And this is the power of addiction. And it's important to understand this so that we can better understand those who struggle with addiction and we can better offer grace to people that we love. Finally, he, he ended by encouraging us to consider what we might be addicted to. He asked this question, He said, what are the addictions which may not be terminally physical like substance addiction, but can greatly diminish one's life? Sex? Food? Well, this can be terminal, he added in parentheses. Gambling? Technology? Love and romance? Codependency? And the list goes on. And he challenges us to reflect. What in your life is diminishing your life and simply engaging in it, even in moderation, isn't bringing good things into your life, and you should just cut it off? It's a question worth pondering. As we consider the things that we consume, I hope that you've, um, I hope you find these three responses helpful to process. Um, it's not a holistic approach. I'm not, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing things, but, but they are three spiritual practices that people have identified as spiritual disciplines of sorts that you can practice um, that people have found essential to their faith. So here's what they are as a reminder. Fasting is when you give up something that's good for a short period of time. Um, in, in, in order to increase your awareness, either of God or the struggles of other people. So the question I leave with you is, what would it look like to give up something that's good just to remind yourself of what it feels like to need something, to hunger for something? And then allow that hunger to give you a hunger for God or to allow it to increase your empathy for others. Moderation is when you give up an indulgent thing on a regular basis so you can have a more healthy relationship with it. Or if, you, or if you avoid indulgent things, engaging in indulgent things every once in a while so you can enjoy life. Um, so what in your life would be better and more enjoyable if you consumed less of it or maybe even a little bit more of it? You know, moderation, finding that balance. The, the third one is sobriety. When you give up something unhealthy indefinitely because it does try to control your life. So what in your life isn't bringing you value or is actually hurting you that you would be better off getting rid of entirely? Where do you see your brain tricking you into thinking that you need something that you don't? And I want to add specifically with sobriety, if you're struggling with an addiction, this is hard. And by hard, I mean hard, like hard, hard. Like you're not, you can't do it on your own. 
Um, in fact, the 12 steps would say that sobriety starts only after admitting that you're powerless. Uh, so if that's you, whether, whether it is, uh, whatever it is, I, I know that I'm here to listen without judgment um, and that we have great groups that meet at our church. Um, and then we have friends who have experience in recovery that I'd love to introduce you to if that's something you want to talk about. So I, I, but I'd encourage you, whether it's fasting, moderation, or sobriety, think about what in your life could you engage in with differently. I want to end by saying this, that all of these, um, should, that none of them should come from a place of shame. And if somehow I accidentally introduce shame into the room, I, I want to apologize and say that that's not my intent. In, in the same way that we look at beautiful buildings people have made for worship, God looks at us and says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows your struggles. God knows the state of your home. God knows the state of your body, your pains and your addictions and your negative thoughts. And knowing all of that, God still looks at you and says, hey, can we be roomies? Can I hang out with you? Not after you fast, not because you fast, not because you've learned how to eat less ice cream, not after you're no longer addicted to something or because you're now fit. Today, however you find yourself, God's like, I want to be with you. God wants to be with you today. And that is a promise you can count on. So let's give each other grace in our, all of our different journeys. And remember that God is with us that God loves us, and it's our job to love one another wherever we find ourselves. Let's pray. God, we come before you. Help us, Lord, to uh, process what it means to uh, be a dwelling place for your spirit, that you would want to be with us. Remind us of the great power that you're able to offer us as we wrestle with those things in our life that we struggle with whether it be an addiction or a self-image or whatever it is, Lord, wherever our, wherever our struggles are, come and meet us, encourage us, and show us what it means to be loved by you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.